The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So I was saying my, my sister and I have been quite involved in looking after my uh, elderly parents over the past few years. And a few years ago, I even I moved back in with them uh, for a while when they were still living in their uh, in the home I grew up in. And I had, you know, altruistic motives in doing this. I, the Buddha spoke uh, in various places about one's duty to one's parents, and that was meaningful to me. Uh, in some ways, that moving back in proved not to be such a great idea for either them or me in some ways. Um, certainly spending times from, time for me with uh, my family, with my parents, um, is a good reality check. It can be fairly easy to feel uh, kind of clear and equanimous and occasionally even wise in meditation centers and monasteries and places like that that I, I tend to hang out in quite a bit. Um, but um, moving back in with my folks was a good check-in. Those times when I would be shocked to find myself behaving like an angry child or a morose teenager, uh, it's kind of humbling, you know. It's, I'm grown up, I'm middle-aged now, I'm supposed to be at least a little bit mature. And, uh, you know, I teach meditation, so I guess more practice is definitely required. Well, my mother died just uh, just this last month, just a few weeks ago. And she was 91. And definitely was ready to go. But it's a, a real loss, I think, for any of us when we lose a parent no matter how old we are, no matter our age. Uh, my dad is still going. He'll be 92 in this coming May if he makes it that long. And uh, he's doing okay, you know, he's pretty good. My mother suffered from fairly severe dementia in the last couple of years of her life, and uh, she became quite frail and physically as well. Um, my father's a little stronger, and his mind is clearer. His memory's not great, but... You know, all in all, at, at that age, it's it's pretty good. But it's not easy, and he struggles a lot. And uh, over the last years, my parents, there's been a lot of suffering and a lot of times of denial and resistance. And uh, it's just not easy no matter what, growing old. Even if we have great circumstances in our lives and even if our health is good, it's just not that easy. And most of the time, we we don't like to think about growing old and aging and death all that much. You know, we see life as something, life is happening now and old age and death will happen somewhere down the road, hopefully down a very long road. And so our culture really also conditions in us a, a tendency to avoid subjects like this. They're seen as unpleasant. But I think in a way there can be an almost unconscious kind of arrogance that accompanies it's this attitude of avoiding these subjects. You know, we see old age, we see illness, death. These are things that are happening to other people. And, you know, we are, we're alive and maybe fairly well, fairly healthy, relatively young. And we'll deal with these things later when the time comes. And our culture glorifies youth and youthfulness to a huge degree. You know, we put youth on a pedestal here in the West. And it's almost as though we're not supposed, we're supposed to not get old. As though somehow aging and old age, death, as though this is somehow evidence of a personal failure or a reflection of bad taste or something. We tend to hide our old folks away in nursing homes, keep them out of sight and out of mind. And if growing old is evidence of a failure, personal failure, then, then death is the ultimate in failure. And we hide death and dying away. It's, we don't want to look at it. And we sanitize the dead in funeral parlors. You know, we try to make them look attractive and alive as though maybe they're just taking a nap. I've, I've heard of stories of people you know, telling their children that well, Grandpa is just sleeping, he's just resting, you know, when, when someone passes away. 
And so our culture can condition in us a, a very strong fear of death, wanting to avoid this subject, and we do everything possible to keep it out of our minds, out of our consciousness at times. We tend to focus a lot of our energy on getting and having things, acquiring possessions, material possessions a lot, or acquiring knowledge or different experiences. And we use all of these things as a way to define ourselves. We can all look in our lives and see how we use all of the things we acquire in the world, even in not material things. We use them to define who we are, to enhance our sense of who we are. And this life of getting and having, this attitude of getting and having, can really work as a way of shielding us from these fundamental realities of aging and sickness and death. But the truth is that these, these are things that are inevitable for all of us. This is part of life. It's a natural, inevitable part of life, and it's true for everyone. None of us will be able to avoid these things. And this was true for the Buddha. There's a, a lovely short sutta called the Jara Sutta. Jara means old age, aging. I'll read, read you a part of it. I have heard that on one occasion the Blessed One, that's the Buddha, was staying near Savati in the eastern monastery in the palace of Migara's mother. Now on that occasion, the Blessed One, upon emerging, emerging from seclusion in the late afternoon, sat warming his back in the western sun. And then the Venerable Ananda, this was the Buddha's attendant, his cousin, the Venerable Ananda went to the Blessed One and on arrival, having bowed down to him, began to massage the Blessed One's limbs with his hand. And he said, It's amazing, Lord. It's astounding how the Blessed One's complexion is no longer so clear and bright. His limbs are flabby and wrinkled, his back bent forward, and there's a discernible change in his faculties, in the faculty of the eye, of the ear, the faculty of the nose, of the tongue, and of the body. And the Buddha spoke and said, That's the way it is, Ananda. When young, one is subject to aging, when healthy, subject to illness, when alive, subject to death. The complexion is no longer so clear and bright. The limbs are flabby and wrinkled and the back bent. And there is a discernible change in the faculties of the eye, the ear, and so on. I really love this description. We don't, we don't, there aren't so many descriptions of the Buddha just as a, a person living and growing old there in, in India at that time. But you can picture him as an older man here warming his back in the sun and getting a, a bit of a massage from his, his attendant, his, his friend, and noticing the aches and pains and the changes, the loss that comes with aging. And the truth, is, the truth is that we're aging from the moment of our birth. This is Jean Cocteau. He said, since the day of my birth, my death began its walk. It is walking toward me without hurrying. So this is, this is what happens when one takes birth. And we never know when we might become ill. And we have no idea when we might die. There's no guarantees. We're not actually guaranteed even the next breath. And when death does come, it will take all of what we've managed to acquire, all of our acquisitions, including whatever sense of self we may have managed to put together. It's going to take everything. And so death isn't waiting for us at the end of a road. In a certain way, it's our constant companion. It walks along with us every step of the way in our life. But if we have a lot of fear and resistance to these things, to aging, sickness, and death, at times this can really rob us of a lot of our vitality in life. And some of, sometimes we find ourselves spending a lot of time and energy avoiding, repressing fear, and this can cause us to lose out on a lot of what life may have to offer. And our fear, this kind of fear, and our attempts to avoid this 
can really rule our life and keep us from fully living. And I've seen this a lot in friends and family. There's so much of, of how they live is governed by an underlying unease, a fear of change, of aging, of death, of illness. But if we can face our fear intentionally bring this to the forefront of our life, this can actually enhance our life. And really facing these kinds of difficult subjects in our fear can actually open us to a whole new way of living and to a fullness and richness of life where we make the best use of our time. In the core teaching of the Buddha, in the Four Noble Truths, the Buddha said that it is our attachments, it's all that we cling to, especially our sense of self, that is the cause of suffering, of stress, of difficulty in our lives. And this is the, goes to the heart of the Second Noble Truth, the truth of the cause of dukkha, of suffering. And it's not something to be believed, it's something for us to look at, each of us individually, to see if this is true, I mean, this is the core of our practice. And if we live with the understanding that death will eventually part us from all of our attachments, from everything that we hold on to, including whatever sense of self we may have created, then we may be able, this may help us to start letting go of these attachments now, and this can save us from a lot of suffering later. This is a quotation from a Thai uh, forest master monk lived in the last century named Ajahn Buddha Dasa. Some of you may have heard of him. He said, It is usually proclaimed eloquently that birth, aging, and death are suffering. But birth is not suffering. Aging is not suffering. Death is not suffering when there is no attachment to my birth, my aging, and my death. At this moment, we may be grasping at birth, aging, and death as ours. But if we don't grasp, they are not suffering. They are only bodily changes. There are five contemplations that the Buddha recommended that we frequently reflect on. And in a collection of uh, teachings called the Anguttara Nikaya, he spells this out. He said, there are five facts, O oh monks. He was speaking to the monks, his disciples at that time. He said, there are five facts which ought to be contemplated upon by everyone, whether man or woman, householder, or one gone forth as a nun or a monk. What are these five? I am subject to aging. Aging is unavoidable. I am subject to illness. Illness is unavoidable. I am subject to death. Death is unavoidable. I will grow different, separated and parted from all that is dear and beloved to me. I am the owner of my actions, heir to my actions, born of my actions and live dependent on my actions. Whatever actions I may do for good or for ill, to this I will fall heir. And a lot of people in Asia, I know, and here in the West too, keep this list up somewhere around where they see it and, and uh, bring it to mind. It's recommended that to frequently reflect on these. And it might not sound like the cheeriest list of subjects. You know, we might notice some resistance when we first hear this. You know, we all, sure, we all know we're going to get old eventually. We'll may have sickness and we're going to eventually die and we know that you can't take it with you. We'll be parted from things. But why should we dwell on these dreary kinds of subjects? And isn't it better to focus on enjoying life while we can? Maybe Buddhism strikes us as a bit of a downer tradition. You know, first, we're told that life is suffering and now we're told to contemplate old age, sickness and death. It's, you know, it's a bummer, maybe. We might not mind investigating teachings on impermanence, on change in the world around us. 
But these kinds of contemplations, they hit kind of close to home. And we might tend to think, well, life is hard enough without dwelling on these kinds of morbid thoughts. But the point of these contemplations isn't to make us feel bad or to somehow create in us a sense of resignation or powerlessness in the face of the inevitable. And although we might fear that this kind of contemplation could be depressing, we actually find when we start doing this that the opposite proves to be true. Because if we're living with what may often be an unacknowledged fear of death and aging, of fear of infirmity, of illness, if we really come face to face with this, if we really bring it to our attention, we can begin to undo our conditioning around this, around these fears. And we can begin to see that they're impermanent and empty like everything else. And we can bring them to the surface of our awareness and start to let them go. And they no longer weigh so heavily and we find greater ease in our lives. We feel lighter. Another Thai forest master named Ajahn Lee Damodaro said this, aging, illness, and death are treasures for those who understand them. They're noble truths, noble treasures. If they were people, I'd bow down to their feet every day. Now, this is kind of a, an unusual, sort of a radical stance to these subjects compared with how we might usually look at them. To regard them, aging illnesses, death, as noble treasures, noble truths. But the purpose of this refle these reflections, these five contemplations, is to allow us to take our stand on reality, stand on the truth of things as they really are. And they also have the purpose and the function of awakening in us a sense of the preciousness of life. And they connect us with a spirit of what is called samvega in the Pali language. Samvega, usually translated as spiritual urgency. I know for myself, as I've grown older, the passage of time seems to have sped up. I don't know if any of you have noticed this, but years go by so quickly now. It seems like, you know, they're gone in the snap of a finger. I turn around and another year has passed. Where does the time go? And the perception of time is certainly not a fixed thing. And, you know, a single period of meditation can seem to last an eternity and a a year of our life seems to vanish in an instant. So it is quite relative, but it does seem like it's speeding up. <laughs> in, the, in one uh, teaching, the Buddha quoted a, another teacher who was around teaching at the same time as he was. It was a teacher named Araka. And he said, Short is the life of human beings, limited and brief. This one should wisely understand. One should do good and live a pure life, for none who is born can escape death. And then this teacher, Araka, went on with a list of, of quite lovely similes pointing to this brevity and shortness of life. He said, just as a dewdrop on a tip of a blade of grass will quickly vanish at sunrise and will not last long, even so, a human life is like a dewdrop. It does not last long. And just as when rain falls from the sky in thick drops, a bubble appearing on the surface of water will vanish and does not last long. And just as a line drawn on water with a stick will vanish and does not last. Just so a human life is like this. It does not last long. And this is one way that we can connect to this sense of spiritual urgency, this quality of samvega. We touch our own mortality very directly by connecting to the truth of life's brevity, of its fragility, but not in some kind of morbid way, but in a way that allows us to touch the beauty and preciousness of life. And it makes us want to use, the, use our time wisely, make the best use of our time. And so we can examine our life from this perspective and ask ourselves, what is really worth doing? What in life is really matters? 
How can I really use my time well and wisely? This is a poem by Mary Oliver, poet that I really like. It's called The Summer Day. It speaks to this, I think, in a lovely way. Who made the world? Who made the swan and the black bear? Who made the grasshopper? This grasshopper, I mean. The one who has flung herself out of the grass. The one who is eating sugar out of my hand. Who is moving her jaws back and forth instead of up and down. Who is gazing around with her enormous and complicated eyes. Now she lifts her pale forearms and thoroughly washes her face. Now she snaps her wings open and floats away. I don't know exactly what a prayer is. I do know how to pay attention, how to fall down into the grass, how to kneel down in the grass, how to be idle and blessed, how to stroll through the fields, which is what I've been doing all day. Tell me, what else should I have done? Doesn't everything die at last and too soon? Tell me, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? And probably all of us here in the room may have some sense of this quality of spiritual urgency. We probably wouldn't have come here. There's a lot of other things we could be spending our time doing tonight. But this is a question that I think is really worth bringing to mind and revisiting at regular intervals. What do we plan to do with our wild and precious life? What is worth doing? I'm sure most, maybe many of you, maybe most of you are familiar with the legendary story of the Buddha's life when he was growing up as the Prince Siddhartha in the palace. He was the the son of a king in uh, northern India, southern Nepal, it is these days. And it's said that uh, when he was born, the king consulted a sage and was told that the, the prince would either become a, a great ruler of, of uh, the realm or he, might, uh, he was equally likely to become a great spiritual teacher, a great renunciate and teacher. And the king wanted him to inherit the crown, the throne. He didn't want him to go off and become a monk or something. So he um, built three palaces and made everything really nice. You know, he had a palace for the hot season and the rainy season and the cool season. And uh, it said that everything was beautiful and the gardens were tended so that he didn't see anything ugly. And he only had beautiful attendants and nobody old or sick around and at some point it said that he left the palace on four occasions and encountered what are called the four heavenly messengers and it said that on the first trip out he he saw an uh, an age an aging person an old person and he, he hadn't seen anyone like that he'd only seen kind of youthful beautiful people it'd be like he'd only read the ads in the magazines and, so he went out and, and he asked his chariot driver, Chana, what, what's wrong with that person? And, and the chariot driver said, well, it's, that's someone who's gotten old. We all grow old. Even you, prince, will become old. And the prince thought this was bad news and went back to the palace and was shaken up by this. And then he went out a second time and there was someone who was quite ill, uh, coughing and showing signs of illness. And again, what's wrong with that person? And was told this is someone who's, who's sick and this happens to all of us. And then a third time he saw a corpse. What's happened here? Well, this person has died. Everyone dies. Death comes for all of us. Even you, Prince, will die. And then on the fourth time it said that he, he saw a renunciate, an alms mendicant, one who had gone forth into homelessness in the spiritual life. It was a symbol to him of a possibility for a greater understanding of these fundamental questions and dilemmas, these existential questions of life, of aging, sickness, and death. And so it was precisely the shock of directly confronting these things 
this is what propelled him into his quest and caused him to leave home. So these are, these are powerful tools for us in our lives. And there's a very direct correlation between these four heavenly messengers and the five contemplations that, I, that I'm talking about tonight. And the first three of them are obvious. It's the contemplation on old age, on sickness and death, that these are unavoidable. In the fourth contemplation, I will be parted from that which is dear to me, reflects the choice that's made by the renunciate, one who has let go of things now in order to be free of future suffering. And so one who goes forth, a monk or a nun who would leave, leave home life, go forth into homelessness, they leave behind most of their possessions, really all of them. They leave behind any status, family, luxuries in life, sex, all of that. They give up a lot of the comforts and luxuries in life with the aim of maximizing the possibility for realization of true freedom. And it's not that we all have to become monks and nuns if we're serious about our practice. You know, this might be an appropriate choice for some people, but it's not for all of us. And both kinds of life, the lifestyle of a lay person or a monk or a nun, they're both conventions. There's no ultimate reality in any of these. And our task, no matter how we choose to live, is the same. Our task is to abandon the cause of suffering, to abandon clinging and craving. And this is the path to freedom no matter how we choose to live. And the fifth contemplation in the list doesn't have a direct parallel in the four heavenly messengers. But there is a direct connection. There's a direct relationship. This, this fourth, this fifth contemplation is, is really a reflection on the, the law of karma, of karma on the truth of cause and effect. It's a reflection on, on cause and effect and the understanding that our actions will yield results and that they bear fruit according to their, nat to their nature in a very lawful way. It's a reflection on the fact that our wholesome and beneficial actions bear positive results and unwholesome actions bear negative results. Beneficial Good, wholesome actions lead to greater happiness and peace. And unwholesome actions bear negative results, lead to greater suffering in our lives. And so if through our practice, through our contemplation and our practice, we begin to unravel some of our conditioning and begin to face our fears and broaden our understanding of what is possible for us as human beings, then we begin to see more and more clearly what leads to happiness and freedom and ease in our lives and what doesn't. And, and when we see this, we begin to make more and more wise choices in our lives. We see directly for ourselves what causes suffering, what leads to stress and suffering in our lives. And we can begin to abandon this, to let go of this, to let go of grasping and craving and clinging and so our actions are born of a growing wisdom. And the natural result of this is an increase in wholesome, beneficial actions and actions that bear positive results. So it's a really nice spiral into greater wisdom and greater ease. So I don't have time to go into all five of these contemplations in in any great detail tonight, I do want to speak uh, a little bit on the first one or two of them, and I'm hoping you'll see how how this all of these can be useful in our lives. I think what I say will apply to all of them. So the first of these contemplations, I am subject to aging. Aging is unavoidable. And of course, we all know that we're getting older, at least intellectually, you know, but what is it like to really sit with the truth of this, to really start to know it in the depth of our being, in our bones? And living with this truth puts us very directly in touch with the truth of impermanence. And as I said, we might be fine with contemplating impermanence in the world around us or in abstract ways. 
And we see it in nature through the cycles of the seasons and the plants that live and die. But maybe when it comes to ourselves, it's not so easy. We don't like to see our bodies changing, aging. We look in the mirror and we start seeing gray hair. Or, you know, I notice my forehead seems to be expanding annually. My hair gets thinner. We don't like to see this. And we may deny that it's actually happening. I, my hair's getting thin. I'm getting a bald spot back here. And you know, for the longest time, I would see it and say, well, it's just a cowlick or... It's, it's always been that way, <laughs> you know, but that's not true. It's coming out. <laughs> but we want to exempt ourselves from the truth of change. I mean, I remember the first time, this goes back a ways now, first getting called sir by someone in a s restaurant or a store, you know. I didn't like, like that. I had a friend, she would, uh, spoke about getting mammed. She'd be out shopping and someone to say, thank you, ma'am. And she said, she'd come home and say, oh, I just got mammed. Uh, <laughs> you know, it bothers us. It's this, they don't, we're not called sir or ma'am ma when we're young. Or, you know, we see metabolic changes, you know, I'm starting to, I can't eat as much as I want to, or if I do, I notice it, you know. It's, I mean, someone recently offered to help me out with my groceries at the store. This was, no, thank you, I'm just fine, you know. This doesn't, this doesn't sit well with us, <laughs> you know. And we notice our self-image start to suffer sometimes with this kind of thing. You know, and I try to take care of myself. I exercise, I like to ride my bicycle, I try to watch my diet. And I've decided that I'm okay with being middle-aged, but I... I think of myself as a youthful middle-aged person, right? So it's a qualified acceptance here. But self-images are inherently problematic, aren't they? You know, they take a lot of maintenance. We use them to feel good about ourselves, to feel secure, but we have to constantly shore them up. And sometimes we find ourselves spending a lot of time and energy, maybe a lot of money, trying to keep our self-image intact. And then something happens and our self-image is shaken or shattered, you know. Someone calls us sir or ma'am or offers us a seat on the bus or to help us out of the store with our groceries and, okay, there goes my self-image, you know. And so our usual strategy at that time is to adjust it a little bit. You know, it's like my decision to be okay with being middle-aged or to accept my bald spot in the back of my head. But that's not the point of this contemplation. The co point of it isn't to get good at adjusting our self-image. Our practice, the point of this is to go beyond all images, to connect with things the way they really are, with the truth of things right now in this moment. And much of what we experience with aging is really, we can see it in terms of unpleasant feelings in the body and the mind. I mean, take, take our body, for example. Say we, we wake up in the morning and we feel kind of stiff, you know, it's not so great getting out of bed. Or we take a hike and our breath gets short. And there are these unpleasant bodily feelings that come, this dukkha vedana. And what usually happens, what often happens, is that instead of being mindful that there are unpleasant feelings happening. We don't catch it there, so then a whole, start, a whole story starts to unfold in our mind. There's a proliferation into the future that creates this image, and suddenly, you know, there we are, we're old and decrepit, maybe we're parked somewhere in a wheelchair, or we're destitute, wandering aimlessly on the street in our dotage. And our minds start to fill with worry and we relate to this fantasy as some kind of inevitable reality. And it is wise, you know, it's wise to plan for old age. It's not that we don't do this. And so there may be some value to worry in this regard, but, but there's a level of fear and suffering that doesn't have to be part of this. In one of the suttas, the Buddha compared the experience of of what he called an everyday person. You could say someone who's not 
done any contemplation or, or looked closely at their life. He compared this with uh, the experience of someone who has some wisdom in regards to these unpleasant feelings in the body. He said, he was again, he was speaking to the monks. He said, monks, when an everyday person experiences a painful feeling, he sorrows, grieves, and laments. He weeps, beating his breast, and becomes distraught. He feels two feelings, a bodily one and a mental one. And this is often described as, a, there's a simile that goes with this teaching of two arrows, as though one is struck by one arrow in this unpleasant feeling in the body, say, and then a second arrow of the mental proliferation, the worry and fear that then comes as a result of not noticing that it's just this unpleasant feeling in the body. So the Buddha, in this teaching, he goes on to say, while experiencing that same painful feeling, he harbors aversion toward it and then seeks delight in sensual pleasures. He does not know of any escape from painful feeling other than the pursuit of sensual pleasures. And then he goes on to say, in the case of a noble disciple, that is one who sees clearly, when such a one experiences a, pain, a painful feeling, he does not sorrow, grieve, or weep. He feels one feeling, a bodily one, but not a mental one. So you could say, in essence, at that time, for one who has some clarity and vision and wisdom, then there's not a second arrow. But in our lives, we tend to assume that this second arrow is inevitable. And we don't see that often we're the ones who are drawing the bowstring and firing the second arrow. We're shooting it into ourselves. An unpleasant bodily feeling is just that. And in and of itself, it might be bearable. But what isn't bearable is our aversion to it, our reaction and all of the mental proliferation about it. This is what's unbearable. The story about what it means and all that's in store for us because of it. And so we can become attached to and identified with some image of ourselves in some future state of misery. And this can become a lot of our reality. And it can even take over our world long after this initial unpleasant feeling in the body has subsided or disappeared. So this first arrow is unavoidable with aging, for example. There's going to be unpleasant feelings. But the second one is optional. And with our practice, we can learn to feel this first arrow. And it may stop right there. Or else maybe we catch the process somewhere down the line. Fear and worry may arise, but we see them for what they are. We see how they have arisen in response to these feelings in the body. And in response to, and there's the proliferation of thoughts that come about because of this. And so we'll catch it maybe down the line. We'll see the fear, we'll see the worry, but we can see that it arises and passes away too, like anything else, it's impermanent. So we might be able to start to come to terms with the aging, inevitable aging of our bodies. We might start to avoid shooting the second arrow into ourselves. But what about the aging of the mind? Our minds are also subject to aging. You know, we can see how our practice, how mindfulness and these reflections and our contemplations will serve us if we can stay alert and attentive and how they can really be a, a support and serve us as we age as we deal with sickness and the inevitability of death. But what if our mind ceases to function well? What if our ability to be mindful and to practice begins to slip away? I mean, I'm noticing a diminishment of my powers of memory. I'm 54 now. But if I don't write it down, forget it, you know. And I see, I think about my mother, you know, she had pretty severe dementia before she died the last couple of years. And, you know, maybe this is what's in store for me. You know, a lot of confusion, short-term memory gone. I mean, we had the same conversations over and over and over. And there's so much fear in our culture about this. I think people tend to fear the loss of mental abilities far more than, than any kind of decay of the physical body. This is so much in, in our consciousness these days more and more. A few years ago, 
quite a few now, I guess. It's been, I had the good fortune to meet a very highly respected, um, very beloved Cambodian Buddhist monk. His name was Mahagosananda. Some of you might have heard of him. He uh, lived in in the States, in New England, in Massachusetts, uh, in his later years. He was the uh, what's called the Sangha Raja of Cambodia, the, the king of the Sangha, it said, very high uh, title. And he was very um, active in the peace movement in his life. He uh, especially was an advocate for the banning of the use of landmines. And where in his country, in Cambodia, there were lots of them left in the ground and horrible things that happened to children and other people from these landmines. And he used to organize long marches across Cambodia to call attention to these, uh, to landmines and hoping to ban their use. He was nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize five times. I'm not sure that he ever received it. And uh, at Spirit Rock Meditation Center in Marin County, there's a beautiful photograph of Mahagosananda and the Dalai Lama. And they're bowing to each other and they're both bent almost down <laughs> parallel to the ground. They're, each one is trying to get lower than the other to show the greater respect. But Mahagosananda, in his later years, he had Alzheimer's disease and he, his mind uh, uh, suffered a lot. He lost a lot of his mental capacities from this disease. And uh, I remember one time I visited him at this little monastery where he was living in, the, in central Massachusetts. And and uh, I went to pay respects, just to see him and pay respects. And he started, um, I went into his room and he started handing me things, gifts, presents, stuff from his room. He had this huge smile on his face. And he didn't speak, but he, he um, the whole room was filled with this metta, this loving kindness. It was like a field in there. And there was this childlike quality that he had, um, and the power of his presence was just amazing. A lot of people who knew him at that time spoke of this, that being around him, it was like being bathed in love and light. Just a beautiful being. But very diminished in, in some respects in his mental abilities. I read a story about uh, a great Indian sage named Sri Nisargadatta Maharaj. Some of you might have heard his name. He lived in Totten, Bombay until he was quite elderly, died in the last century, late in the last century. And when he was in his 80s, someone asked him what it was like to be an old yogi. And he replied, oh, I just watch senility come in. I see the memory decompose on an almost daily basis. And he roared with laughter. So he wasn't upset about that, <laughs> apparently. It just cracked him up. So perhaps he was pointing to something larger, something beyond the brain and the thinking mind, some part of us that has the capacity to observe the whole thing. And maybe some of us, maybe all of us at times have had some indication of this possibility in our meditation practice. And we see the arising and passing of thoughts and we see all kinds of mental activity. There's an aspect of, of our awareness that can be mindful of mental activity of thoughts. And what is it that knows the arising and passing of mental activity, the arising and passing of a thought? So there's some aspect of our awareness that's much larger and deeper than the thinking mind. And as our practice unfolds and deepens, we begin to connect with this more and more intimately. And this is a pure awareness. It's not affected by anything. The quality of this can be likened to the sky or open space. All kinds of things can appear, appear in it, but it remains pure and unaffected by anything. Aging, illness, and death may arise, but our awareness can remain unaffected and unperturbed. And this is our practice. Mm. So I'm mindful of the time. I'll just say a little more touch briefly on this uh, the second of the reflections on I am subject to illness. Illness is unavoidable. And usually usually when we're sick, we, we see it as a problem. We're unable to do things in the usual way. We lose a lot of energy. Our bodies can be filled with all sorts of unpleasant 
feelings and sensations. And it's an obstacle. We see it as something to get over so we can get back to, to work, maybe, or to, to what we need to do. But in a way, illness can present us with a real opportunity if we look at it in the right way. It forces us to slow down and to let go of things. It's an immediate and undeniable reminder of the fragility and unpredictability of life. It's a clear reminder of the truth of impermanence. And it points to the fact that eventually our bodies are going to give out altogether at some point. And so when we're sick, we have this chance to practice for old age when low energy and unpleasant feelings are going to be more and more an ongoing part of our life. They'll become more of our constant companions. And of course, we want to take care of ourselves. Good health is a great blessing, and it makes sense to do our best to stay healthy. It's only natural to want to feel well. And we do have jobs and responsibilities and things that we need to do, and so we need to be healthy to, to live our lives well. But illness is also unavoidable. And it eventually, at some point, comes to all of us, even if we're blessed with quite good health. There's a sutta called the Nakulapitta Sutta. And the Buddha in this one is addressing a householder named Nakulapitta who has come to him for advice. And he's old and he's sick. And he says, he describes himself thus. He says, he's afflicted in body and ailing with every moment. And the Buddha says to him, so it is, householder, so it is. The body is afflicted, weak and encumbered. So you should train yourself. Even though I may be afflicted in body, my mind will be unafflicted. That is how you should train yourself. So how can we do this? Is there a way we can follow this advice, the Buddha's advice to Nakulapitta? And one way we can, we can approach this is just as with aging, those aches and pains that arise with aging, a lot of the way that we can work skillfully with illness is learning how to work with unpleasant, unpleasant feelings and sensations. That's a lot of what happens. And so much of, a lot of what we see, most of what we see as problematic and our suffering when we're sick comes down to this unpleasant, painful sensations in the body. And if we look, we'll see that much of our life, even when we're healthy, is spent in the push-pull of seeking pleasant experiences and trying to avoid unpleasant ones. Just through the day, a lot of what we do is trying to keep this strategy happening of avoiding that which is unpleasant and getting that which is pleasant. And this kind of strategy keeps us, can keep us really on the move. It can keep us restless, and it can be tiring and exhausting at times. And in its extreme form, it leads to the whole range of addictive behaviors, the seeking to avoid unpleasantness. It can become our whole strategy of how we're living. But unpleasant feelings are a part of life. We can't avoid them. It's not that we have to go looking for them. And it's not that we don't want to enjoy when things are good and pleasant. But sooner or later, usually sooner, unpleasant things are going to arise, unpleasant feelings in the body. And if we're able to be with them and to learn how to be with them skillfully, they'll only serve us. This will only serve us. And by strengthening our ability to be with them, we're learning skills that will be really helpful as we grow older and we face the inevitable aging and death of the body. And this doesn't mean that we're practicing in order to become able to bear more pain or to be more, excuse me, more stoic in the face of discomfort, although maybe a bit of this would be useful. But we're really, what we're learning is that we can be with these sensations without being overwhelmed by them, that we can be afflicted in body but not have to necessarily be afflicted in mind. Hmm. There's a lovely book. Uh, some of you may have, have it or have heard of it. It's called Living in the Light of Death. It's by a teacher 
named Larry Rosenberg. He founded a meditation center in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And I, I highly recommend it if you're interested in these contemplations in this subject. And in this uh, book, he has a beautiful quotation from a, a Zen master from the 13th century named Dogen. Someone once asked Dogen, what, what is the awakened mind? And he replied, the awakened mind is the mind that is intimate with all things. Which I think is a beautiful pointing out in that reply. The mind that is intimate with all things. And for me, this, this statement is very simple but it points directly and I think beautifully to the, un- the unfolding of our practice. We could say that our practice is a process of extending the boundaries of what we're willing to be intimate with. And so the enlightened mind, the enlightened heart, is the mind that has no boundaries. T.S. Eliot in a poem in, in Burt Norton, he said, Humankind cannot bear very much reality. But this is our practice, really, isn't it? Our practice is taking our stand on reality and becoming as intimate as possible with life as it unfolds moment by moment. That's our practice. That's mindfulness practice, is going towards this intimacy with life, touching it directly and deeply. And what could be more intimate than directly touching our own mortality and this truth of aging and death? And so these kinds of contemplations can really be a very fruitful part of our practice, help us to connect with what really matters in life, help us to expand the realm of what we hold possible for ourselves as human beings. And they point us directly in the direction of freedom. So let's sit quietly for just a minute and then I'll ring the bell and I'll call it a night. Unless you have, if you have questions, I'll hang around for a bit. Let's sit quietly for a moment. So thank you for your kind attention this evening. I wish you a safe trip home. And uh, please come on uh, Saturday for the Metta day long if you're interested in that. It's uh, it's a beautiful, wonderful practice. Uh, So please be welcome. And if anyone has any questions or comments, I'll hang around for a bit. But it's it's almost nine, so please uh, take off if you're ready to go home.